interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Morning to you all. It is really good to be in your neck of the woods. Uh, we have more snow than you do in Dallas. Um, I <coughs> will um, leave that comment alone for now. I, this this is, has been a record snowfall in Dallas. Um, in ver- I think in, uh, well, since they've been recording it, I don't believe they've had more than this. It's 12 or 14 inches. And um, we just do not have the equipment that you have. And, you know, you, when you hear that from the city officials and from the airlines, you know, ad, ad, ad finitum, they just continually repeat, we're so sorry, but we don't have the equipment that they have up north. After a while, that kind of rings a little hollow, you know, and you say, well, why don't you get the equipment, you know, or something. <laughs> but um, at any rate, um, it is, uh, it's really good to, to be here. We're continuing the theme. Let me just see if I could so I know. How many of you were there last night? Okay, so a good number. Um, we, <clears throat> we began last night looking at uh, the subject of the weakness of God. And uh, we take that from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, where um, Paul uh, says that the uh, weakness of God is stronger than men. And... The um, idea that Paul develops, I tried to say last night, was not just a one-time statement about the the nature of uh, our weakness and uh, why our weakness is significant for bearing the strength of God into the world. But it really, my case last night was that it was really the theme of Paul's life. And that when Paul was converted, when he became a Christian, the world changed for him. And that was not just a matter of belief, as I said last night, of cognitive belief. It was a matter of identification. It was a matter of his entire personality, his entire understanding of his own identity changed from that of a man who um, really saw himself as the elite in many ways. Paul was, you recall, the... uh, he was a citizen of Rome, and so he had the stature of being a Roman citizen. He was um, a Jew, and with all of the credentials of his Jewish education and his upbringing, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee, and so forth. And he was also uh, a part of Greek culture and Greek learning. And he understood these three civilizations, these three cultures, very, very well. And he was actually a person with a tremendous amount of status, as it were, in all three. Rank was the word we used last night. And he just, he just immediately saw, not that that didn't matter because he used those things in his ministry, but he saw, he saw them as tools now to, to further the message of Christ. And he could use them as tools because he wasn't using them as the basis of his identity. You know, if you really, if your identity is wrapped up in these things, 
then you're very protective of them and, you know, you're always defending them. And so the things that would happen to Paul that were very, very difficult, he was not, he, you know, he, such a person would be miffed. I mean, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't treat me like that. Well, Paul didn't do that, but he wasn't afraid of using the fact that he was a Roman citizen at times to, to get a hearing uh, when he wanted to get a hearing. But the point was his identity had radically changed. And that identity was one of, 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 uh, of being one with Christ, being in Christ, being identified with Christ. And that identity change um, was uh, really the model, I want to suggest to you, for what our understanding of our own identities must be like. That when we become Christians... Um, it's not just a matter that our cognitive belief system has changed. Um, it, it, it isn't even <clears throat> just a matter that we're, quote, saved, close quote, though we are, of course. It is really a matter that our whole, our whole identity as people, who we are, actually is changed by the virtue of the fact that we are made one with Christ, in Christ. Remember I said that in Christ was Paul's way of speaking about what a Christian was. He didn't even use the term Christian, uh, hardly at all. Um, and the, the term in Christ was the way he spoke of us. Now, I want to switch gears this morning and talk about another individual, Peter, who had something of a similar change, though the circumstances were quite different, and though the issues were different in Peter's life, as we're going to see. Um, but he, too, went through a very difficult in his case, an extremely difficult identity change, you might say, as he came to understand who the Lord really was. And we want to look at that from the vantage point of John chapter 21. Now, I know you're, you're all good Bible people and you brought your Bibles, but I'm going to ask you to do something, and that is to keep them closed for just a minute. You may, you may in fact, uh, open them and follow along later on, but at first, I would like you to listen and the reason I'm doing that is because I want you to enter into an exercise with me that is probably much more like the way people in most of Christian history have heard scriptures. That is, they heard it rather than read it. And sometimes when we read scripture along with the pastor, you know what we're doing. We're just kind of waiting for him to make a mistake. And what? oh, yeah, see, he didn't say that word right or something. Uh, but that's not, that's not my main reason. My main reason is that I want you, and I used this term last night, I want you to use your right brains. I want you to use your imagination. Why is the Bible told in stories? Why are there so many stories? Why are there so many narratives? Well, when, you, when your kids were little and you told them stories, what were you doing? They, their eyes would get big. They would involve themselves in the story. Well, I think that's exactly why uh, the scriptures are written this way, that we would see ourselves into the story. We'd read ourselves into it. So as I read um, from John chapter 21, would you just let your imagination kind of drift in and picture the scene, picture the boat, picture Peter, picture Jesus on the shore, <clears throat> and, um, and let, let, your, um, let your imagination do its work on your heart which is not a bad way of reading Scripture at all. In fact, I would say if we don't do that, to some extent we're, we're really missing out on much that is there for us. So John chapter 21. 
After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, have you caught any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, and, and that's John, the writer of this gospel, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his clothes, for he was stripped for work and sprang into the sea. It's a little odd, isn't it? We would take our clothes off before we jump in the sea, but apparently he was naked. They worked naked. Now, why these fishermen work naked, I have absolutely no idea. But apparently, so, you know, he didn't want to sort of appear to the Lord naked, so he put his, his outer garment on and jumped in. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Getting this picture in your mind now, sort of seeing it? When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. There's been a lot of ink spilt over the centuries about what 153 fish meant. You know, 153 must be a numerological symbol for Peter in the Old Testament, and there's all kinds of theories. Do you know why I think it says there were 153 fish? Because there were 153 fish. And and it just, in essence, what it really shows is that there's an, a, a kind of historical detail here that says this really happened. This was history. This isn't just a story made up. It's It actually was um, taking place. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, 
Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was going to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. But there were also many other things which Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What a great passage. Um, one of my favorites from the Gospels. It's just a, a wonderful, vivid, and it's got so much to teach us. Let's, let's dive in and, and look. Um, uh, let me just remind myself of, of the time that I, uh, did I bring my schedule up here. Yeah, we're, we're, we go this session until 1045, leaving questions. No, 1015, 1015 with questions. Okay, great. Um, <clears throat> the 17th century, century philosopher, physicist, mathematician, Blaise Pascal said that not only do we know God through Jesus Christ, but we also only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. And I think that was very, very profound, wasn't it? Some of you who are familiar with the works of John Calvin know that he basically says the same thing in the first paragraph of his magnum opus, The Christian Institutes, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. In that very first paragraph, he says, whether we start with the knowledge of man and move from knowledge of man to knowledge of God, or whether we start with the knowledge of God and move to the knowledge of man, it matters not. Because either way, you will inevitably go in the other direction. In other words, if you want to know who God is, you must know who you are. If you want to know who you are, you must know who God is. This is a, a, a wonderful, actually a tremendous way of understanding what I think is in this passage. Remember we talked about uh, Paul's identity last night. And in a sense, we're going to talk about Peter's identity this morning. How did Peter see himself? How did Peter come to know who he really was? So that he could really give who he really was to who the Lord really was. Now, the larger context here is the end of John's gospel. It's the last story which John told. It's right at the end of his gospel, which is kind of remarkable in itself. Uh, John was the beloved disciple. He uh, was the one who laid his uh, head on Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper. There was this sense of a real community and, and love between Jesus and John. And yet the last story that John tells is not about himself. It's about Peter. And there is, a, I think, a very significant reason for that, um, as we'll see as we move along here. Um, in chapter 21, verse 25, as I said, and many other things he did, uh, and if um, all of them were written down, there wouldn't be room for them. So John was selective, like all the gospel writers, selective in the stories that he would take out of the life of Christ. And um, it, again, very significant that this was the last one he told. Now, the specific context is what? It's after the resurrection. The resurrection has just taken place. And I want to propose to you that, if, at least as I have used my 
right brain on this passage. There's a kind of eerie normalcy about this passage. It's like it's like a just going back to the way things were. You know, the disciples went back to fishing more than once during the time that they were following Jesus. And this appears to be just like another one of those times. It's like they're going back to the way things were before the death and resurrection of the Lord. What could be more normal than Peter saying, you know, I think I'm going to go fishing. And six of his friends, the disciples say, I'm, well, let's go with you. Let's do it together. But here and now, after the resurrection, uh, this takes on new meaning. Perhaps among other things, Peter is thinking back uh, to what he wanted things to be like. He wants to be accepted by the Lord. He wants to know that he's close to the Lord. He wants to, as it were, resume the position that he had as the sort of um, unspoken or maybe unappointed, unofficial, you might say, leader in some way of the disciples. And he's ever the impetuous leader, you know. He jumps in the water here, uh, swims to shore. He could have stayed in the boat. I mean, it wouldn't have taken that much longer to get there. But it's just Peter's nature, isn't it? It's like the time that he sees Jesus walking on the water. And he says, Jesus, I'd like to come out there and walk on the water with you. And he stepped in. The Lord says, well, come. And he steps out on the water and he does fine until he looks down and realizes what he's doing. And then he sinks like a rock, which is one of many times that Peter actually fulfills the meaning of his name. Peter means rock. And he just sank like one. Or perhaps you remember the time on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter and James and John are there and Jesus is transfigured before them. They see them with the glory that he had from the foundations of the world, um, the glory of being the eternal son. Moses and Elijah appear and they're talking about the departure, it says, that Jesus is about ready to make in Jerusalem. Two men, Moses and Elijah, who happen to be experts on departures. They both had had fairly dramatic departures, Moses from Egypt and Elijah from this world. Um, and, and Peter's there and he says, um, it's great to be here. I'll, well, let's build three tents, one for you, Jesus, one for you, Moses, and one for you, Elijah. And then in one of the Gospels, it says he did not know what he was saying. <laughs> you know, this is just Peter. This is just the way he operated. Um, Peter is thinking that things are back to normal. In other words, I believe that Peter had probably reckoned with the wrong of his three denials. But he had not yet reckoned with the meaning of them. And in order for him to be the person who could be used as he was going to be used in the, in the church and its foundation, Peter had to deal deeply with the meaning of these denials. Peter, do you love me more than these what kind of question is that? <laughs> really? Is the Lord trying to uh, incite comparison among the disciples or envy? Um, or is he really matching his question to Peter's fake bravery? Peter, you said that even if everyone else denies you, you wouldn't. But do you really love me more than these, Peter? And the question, as we know, wounds Peter. In effect, Peter says, I thought our little prayer breakfast here confirmed that I was restored. No, Peter, the Lord is in effect saying. 
Only my love can restore you. You can't love me until you are certain that I love you. And I want to propose to you that that is really what is going on here, is that Peter must reckon with the reality that he is loved before he even begins to understand at all what it means to love the Lord back. And then the Lord is in effect saying, only then, only after you know how much you are loved and only after you then love me back, then and only then can you begin to care for the sheep. You see, this story is actually missional. And this may be the reason why it's at the end of John's Gospel. It's a missional passage. It's actually talking about what it means for the, the Peter and the other disciples to move on from here and to begin to care for the sheep that are part of the church. And Peter will only be able to do that after he himself goes through a kind of identity, interior transformation. With each question, Jesus, you notice, uses Peter's birth name, Simon. He doesn't use his name, Peter. The name Peter's name is the name he is given to connote his leadership in ministry. But Jesus goes back behind that appointment, back behind that name that signifies his task, and he goes back to Peter's very birth name. In other words, he's going for Peter's identity, the core identity of who this man is. And what is really being said here is that love's brokenness must come before love's call. He could not be called Peter and begin to function as Peter to care for the sheep until he had been broken, really broken by the love of Christ for him. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because the Lord asked him this three times. And the three questions were, of course, three reminders, painful reminders of the three denials and what was behind the denials all of the self-seeking, all of the pride, all of the pride which in Peter collapsed into fear because that's what pride does. It inevitably collapses into fear. Each time, it was a probe to Peter's heart. Why couldn't you love me? What went wrong? What is the meaning the meaning of your denials. You see where the Lord is going with this. Peter's denials mean that all of his bravado, all of his um, uh, being in charge, all of his apparent success, all of his apparent strength and pride was like a house of cards. And it was certain to collapse as it did under just the pressure of being asked, aren't you one of his disciples? And it all fell apart. It would show, in other words, that Peter was not able to be the person that he saw himself, as he saw himself. The person who controlled his circumstances, controlled the events around him. He couldn't even control his own betraying heart. And I don't think it's too much to say that the question on the beach showed Peter just how out of control 
his life had become. The pain of his failure was drawn out by the Lord's questions. Just think, what questions would the Lord ask you if his object was to do with you the same thing that he did with Peter? What question would he ask you? And and would it be painful? Um, I told you last night that, um, that in a sense, for me, my life changed radically when I became addicted to prescription medication for a time. And I first used this medicine as prescribed and for very legitimate reasons, but slowly over several years, something happened. Narcotics served to ease the pain in me, and this is why I kind of identify here with Peter, I guess, of striving too hard, of trying to make things happen, of trying to keep everything working, of trying to make everyone happy. And so the addiction that really needed fixing in me wasn't so much to narcotic medicine. Indeed, when I stopped using it, I hardly missed it. It was rather an addiction to control, to perfection, to people-pleasing. And by seeing myself in terms of my achievements rather than my limitations, remember the birthday card I told you about last night? By seeing myself in terms of my achievements rather than my limitations, I was actually seeing myself very, very wrongly. It was not easy for me to learn to give up control. And there are reasons for that. And I suspect there's reasons for it in your life too, because I don't think I'm alone. There are reasons that may go way back to something in our childhood, our upbringing, our early adulthood, things that shape us, things I think we're supposed to try and understand in order to better be able to tame this insatiable need for control, for perfectionism, for doing it my way, for wanting to have things happen according to my dictates, whatever shape it particularly takes for you. This wasn't easy for Peter. Peter, when you are older, I don't think it necessarily means old, old, but when you are older, Peter, you will not even be able to walk around by yourself. You will have to be led where you don't necessarily want to go. Imagine Peter hearing those words. Peter had never gone anywhere he didn't really want to go. But that was going to end. He had to learn how not to be in control. He had to learn something that he hadn't learned, that the Lord was obviously so very, very good at. And that is how to be present to God and present to people as their servants, as as their servant. That's what Peter had to learn. The illusion of control is is, uh, really very much with us. We try and control outcomes, don't we? You know, if I get on the interstate, I'm going to going to have late for appointment, and I'm way up in North Dallas, and I've got to be downtown, and I get on the interstate, and the interstate is backed up for a couple miles, I immediately begin to feel that the universe has betrayed me. 
This is unfair. This shouldn't be happening to me. And I feel that way because I'm trying so hard to hold on to the control of my life. And in fact, I'm going to be late now. And I don't want to be late because being late looks bad. And, you know, on and on. At one time, another DFW story, um, kind of like yesterday, uh, we were on a plane. Barbara and I were returning from California where our son was in college. And we... uh, we're flying back on a Friday night just in time to go to a goodbye party for some good friends that were leaving Dallas. And uh, we landed, and uh, the guy pulled aside on the tarmac, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I, come on, I, good news and bad news. The, the good news is that we're on time. The bad news is that there isn't a gate for us. And this happens a lot at DFW, if you've ever flown through there. And um, he said, I'm afraid that we really won't have a gate for one hour. And I turned to Barbara and I said, two hours. And I was right. It was two hours. But here's, here's the point. There's this usual moans on the plane. Oh, you know, groans. And then everyone just kind of settled down. And they, okay, this is what it is. I got to get out their books and they, you know, get used to it. Not me. I'm, I'm sitting there, divide, I'm thinking of all the reasons why this inefficient system, gate system they have, is keeping, you know, here we are, we're, uh, you know, we're a hundred feet from the gate, and we can't get off the plane. And, um, you know, I'm writing letters to the, uh, to the president of American Airlines, telling him how to change his system. You know, when we fight for so much control, oh, I forgot to tell you the best part of that story. I, you know, I'm fighting and fuming and just, you know, wringing my hands. And Barbara, of course, is sitting next to me calmly reading. And she looks at me and she says, Skip, heaven rules. <laughs> and as the shortest sermon I ever heard. <laughs> and probably one of the more powerful ones. You know, if I fight for control, I frequently lose the object or the outcome of that which I'm seeking. And I always lose something personally. I become weary. I, I am stressed. I am anxious. I can't tell you uh, how much <laughs> the last few years have been an absolute delight to me as I've learned how not to be anxious or stressed over relatively small things. And, and for some of you, are saying, well, big deal. I mean, but for me, it was a big deal. Because, you see, I was in control. I was the master of my own fate. Barbara used to put a sticky note up on, my, on the mirror in the bathroom sometimes when things were really bad. For peace of mind, resign as general manager of the universe. <laughs> so I'm learning not to be in control of the outcomes. <clears throat> I'm even learning to not try and manage your perceptions of me. That's a big deal, isn't it? Don't we spend a lot of time trying to really make people like us and do the thing that, you know, here's something I've learned in the last few years. And you have to be careful the way you say this, but I think in this context you'll understand what I mean. What you think of me is none of my business. And what I think of what you think of me will kill me. And the only thing that really matters is what the Lord thinks of me and Barbara. 
You know, I even want to control my suffering. Uh, when we suffer, of course, it's a natural reaction that we want to alleviate the pain. But C.S. Lewis reminds us that pain is God's megaphone. God whispers to us in our successes, but he shouts at us in our pain. The idea that you can't manage your suffering and that you shouldn't manage your suffering is one of the values of it. The value of suffering for the Christian is you can't figure it out. If you could figure it out, it wouldn't be suffering in the same way. You see, my inability not to be in control, my weaknesses, my failures, become the places of my openness to Christ's presence and power. That's what I said about Mother Teresa last night when she said, sometimes we don't realize that Jesus is all we have. Uh, all we need until Jesus is all we got. When I see myself as weak, God takes my strengths and he uses them. He fuses them with his own power so that when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't deny my gifts or abilities, but I have to learn to surrender my definition of my own usefulness. My definition of my own usefulness. I come thinking I know what I'm good at, what I should do, how I should do it. But the Lord, as he remolds me and makes me truly useful, he calls me to see myself in very different terms than I might think. You see, it's not just that there are three affirmations here to match Peter's three denials. There's actually three wounds. Do you see, Simon, that you you can't call yourself by your name which signifies how I intend to use you? Do you see, Simon, that it isn't your gifts or your strengths? It is your love for me which will qualify you to do my bidding in the world. That's very important. There's something about our culture that even in vocational testing and even the way I think Christian counselors speak of this kind of thing, pastors, we sort of look for people's strengths and tell them how to maximize their strengths. There's something to that. But if it's not undergirded by something more deep, something much deeper, then it really doesn't amount to much. Namely, the idea that as I discover my strengths, I need to discover my weaknesses. Because it's in the place of my weaknesses that God will truly use me. I want you to see, the Lord says, that my love is with you, in you, and works its way through you. I want you to see that that is the core of your identity. There's another story about Mother Teresa. There's a a, um, brother order to the Sisters of Charity in Calcutta. In other words, a bunch of monks who are doing the same things as the Sisters of Charity. And this one monk was having a very, very hard time. And, you know, he went to Mother Teresa and was complaining. He said, you know, Mother, this is a mess. My life's so hard. I can't get my work done. My superior's giving me all this trouble. And on and on he went complaining. And she said, Brother, 
what is your calling? And he said, well, my calling is to care for the poor. And she said, oh, no, no, your calling is not to care for the poor. Your calling is to know how much you are loved by Jesus Christ and then to share that love with others. You see, the love with which we love other people, my friends, is not our love. It's not your love. It's Christ's love. It really is Christ's love. Brethren, let us love one another, for love is from God. He who loves is born of God and knows God, John says. He who does not love does not know God because God is love. So if we love, it becomes the way in which it is demonstrated to the world and to ourselves that we actually have been born of God. And that love, you see, is not my trumping it up. Not my saying, oh, I've got to be nice. I've got to go be, do a nice thing for this person today. And mm-hmm. there's, something, there's something actually quite different that happens when we get a hold of this idea. We become a part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ that is ministering to a broken world. I do become his hands and feet. And again, as I said last night, I, I no longer think of this as metaphor. It does not help me to think of it as a metaphor. It is much, much more real to understand it as actually what is going on. Jesus' body is in the world today. Jesus' body is in heaven, of course, ascended to the right hand of the Father. But his body is also in the world through you and me. We are we are the presence of Christ. And we love not with our own love, but with the love of Christ. And this makes all the difference. Really, all the difference. Let me, let me read to, to you something from um, a British churchman who was... Um, thinking about this thing about Peter. And this is what he says. The church has nothing to offer but Jesus Christ. The reality that the church offers to our world is Christ, his gift of forgiveness and his his gift of love. These are given in his word, in his sacraments, in his presence, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Peter in the Acts of the Apostles, we must say, I have neither gold nor silver, but I give you what I have in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. If Christ is the if Christ is the authority of the church, Peter is the model um, of the paradox, which is our experience of human weakness and God-given strength. Peter was made leader of the apostles. But it was not because he was strong or because he was faithful. He was, for some considerable time, neither. He betrayed Jesus out of his own mouth. His shame and his moral collapse at that moment were utterly disabling. Surely Peter is the least authoritative and trustworthy of the apostles. One might think so. But it is here that something of the mystery of God's graciousness and freedom is revealed. 
And as with the cross, we discover a truth which is a source of incomprehension, perhaps even scandal to many. The answer is that we can trust Peter precisely because he has fallen, because he is weak, because he is forgiven, and because he is raised up to service. We trust him because in him we see God's power working in our human brokenness. What an amazing turn of thought. We trust Peter because of his weakness, not in spite of it. Or we look to someone and trust them, not because they have it all together, but because they have shown in their own weakness how much they need Christ. And that's the model. That's the model that we need. See, this is the rationale for the incarnation and the cross, isn't it? God uses broken people to minister to a broken world. The um, Anglican Archbishop of the Southern Cone, it's called, which is South America, the, the southern part of South America, is a man named Gregory Venables, and he lives in Buenos Aires. He is part of the new Anglican movement in the world that um, is in the United States is now called the Anglican Church in North America, an evangelical um, sort of breakaway from the Episcopal Church. And this, this man, Gregory Venables, is, is uh, British. He's English. He, he was raised in Buenos Aires, though. And yet his family, um, you know, retained their, their English character. And every afternoon when he was a boy, they would have English tea about 4 o'clock. And one time when he was a young guy, his mother said, get the plate for, um, you know, uh, for the scones with our tea. So he went and he got us this plate and gave it to his mother. It's a beautiful Wedgwood plate, except it had a big chip out of it. And his mother said, oh, don't, don't use this plate. In fact, throw that away, Gregory. Take it outside and throw it in the trash. And he did so. Thirty years later, he's the Anglican Archbishop of the whole southern part of South America. And he's going off to visit a, a, a church, a very, very remote church uh, in, in, the, in the boonies. And everyone is very excited that the archbishop is coming, of course. This is a big deal for them that he's coming. And they get out their very finest of everything, and, and they have this wonderful service. And, and then it comes time for communion. Of course, the archbishop is going to celebrate communion. And he picks up the bread, and he breaks it and says, This is Christ's body broken for you. And he looks down, and he sees that the plate upon which the bread was resting was the very same Wedgwood plate with the big chip out of it that he had thrown away as a boy. This is a true story. You see, God takes what we would throw away. God takes what we would count as useless. In fact, Paul says, God takes things that are not. Things that are not. And makes them out of them, things that are. Korean pastor, I was once in a seminar with a Korean pastor uh, who was leading a group of us at a big missions conference, and um, he was talking about the work in Korea. And as most of you know, the Christian church in Korea has just mushroomed over the last hundred years. And he was asked a question at the end, why has the church in Korea 
grown so much in comparison with the churches of the other countries of Asia. And without missing a beat, he said, for one reason only. He said, in Asia, Koreans are considered the lowest of the low on the totem pole. We're the nobodies of Asian culture. Now, I've said that in groups where there have been a lot of Asians, and it's created a lot of interesting discussion among you know, Korean Asians and Chinese Asians and Japanese Asians. And, and some people may challenge that. I'm only telling you what I heard from this particular Korean pastor. In other words, in Asia, the sort of pecking order of who's a more elite and who isn't has the Koreans right at the bottom. And this man's contention was that the Koreans had been used so significantly by the Lord because they were considered insignificant by comparison to other Asian cultures. You see, it's the woundedness of my story, not my successes, that teach me to be present to the Lord and to be present to people as a servant. Out of my woundedness, my friends, I don't come to fix people anymore. I used to think that was my job as a pastor. You know, have a counseling appointment with someone. You got an hour or an hour and a half you're going to spend with them. What's my job? Fix them. I got to come up with the answer. And, you know, sometimes I thought I did pretty well. But you know what? That isn't my job. My job is to be be present with them. Actually, to bear the Lord's presence to them. And together, as it were, to go on a journey with that person with the Lord steering the rudder and finding out where in an hour or an hour and a half the Lord is going to take the two of us. In other words, the pressure's off me and it's the way it should be. You see how different that is? It's a different way of living. It's a different way of thinking. I don't come with answers to tell. I come with presence to love. And this takes a quiet mind, a quiet heart, so that I can learn to listen in some small way, so that I can be the outworking of the Lord's love in the world, which is the love that helps and heals and redeems. I'm a Presbyterian minister by profession, but I'm a man with scars by vocation. Don't hide your scars. Don't hide your wounds. Jesus didn't and doesn't to this day. As we will see him with scars and with his wounds when we are with him. For in our woundedness we find the love of God for ourselves and then for others. Love's brokenness precedes Love's call. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we received our introduction into the faith in which, into the grace in which we now stand, and we exalt in the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulation. For tribulation produces perseverance. 
And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Amen.